Have you ever seen a mountain disappear? I have three times now. The first time was so baffling that I literally thought that I had discovered the eighth wonder of the world. The second time was even more stunning because I thought that maybe I had missed something or misunderstood the first time, but no, there I was, driving south on I-95 just a few years ago in a car with my friends, when this looming mountain appeared in the distance. With trees on either side of the road, it is perfectly framing this trapezoidal shape in the distance, looming above you as you move along a straight line. The road curves just before the mountain, however, and as your car gets closer and closer to that curve, the mountain literally sinks out of view. As you turn around, peeking through the foliage to get some indication as to where your mountain has just gone, there's nothing to see. It's been about two years since I've seen this mountain for the first time, and the third trip was no less shocking. This time, however, it was also thrilling, because now I know where to find my disappearing mountain if I ever want to marvel at it again. All I have to do is set my course for the Archie Carr National Wildlife Refuge southeast of Melbourne and bordering our beloved Indian River Lagoon. It's on a strip of barrier islands that border most of Florida's east coast and connects Cape Canaveral all the way to Fort Pierce via the historic scenic roadway A1A. It's home to some of the best tour spots on the east coast, a few notable historic landmarks, and filled to the brim with lush, natural Florida ecosystems. However, none of that is quite so vital as the animals that nest on their shores, the sea turtles. And starting this month, that crucial and delicate nesting process begins all over again. My name is Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian Podcast. This week, the sea turtles that nest on our coasts and the people that fight to keep them safe. Picture in your head a sea turtle. Hold on to that image for a moment. They have olive-shaped dark eyes, a rounded head with a pointed mouth, green circular shapes along their head and neck, and large interconnected shapes forming a symmetrical pattern along a hard shell. What you're picturing is likely a green sea turtle, which is their actual name, green sea turtle. If you imagined primarily brown coloring, that's a loggerhead sea turtle, the most abundant turtle on Florida's coast. There is, however, another breed, one that I have a great affection for. The leatherback sea turtle is unique in almost every way from their loggerhead or green relatives. They are very dark, almost black, with white spots across their entire bodies. They have longer, more pointed heads. Their shells are made up of a softer leather form rather than a hard shell, and have long, wide grooves making up most of their body. They look like a little kid drawing a sea turtle with weird proportions and very unusual patterns, but the best part of leatherback turtles is their size. Green and loggerheads are roughly human size, mostly sitting in the 6 to 8 foot long range. Leatherback turtles, however, can grow to the size of 12 feet long, twice the size of the average human being. These guys are monstrous and intimidating, and most importantly, they are the sea turtles that lay their eggs first for the nesting season in Florida. The official season begins at the start of March, thanks to the leatherbacks. So now that we're pretty deep into March, I decided to take a trip east past the disappearing mountain south of Marin Island in search of some sea turtle eggs. The Archie Carr National Wildlife Refuge is named for Archie Carr, the most prolific sea turtle researcher and advocate of the 20th century. He was a scientist who published his work in 11 books and over 100 articles all about the sea turtle. He was the first person to receive a doctorate in zoology at the University of Florida in 1937. 
Growing up in Georgia, his father taught him about the local animals, instilling a passion in young Archie. He turned this into his life, traveling the world and working with the U.S. Navy to track sea turtle environments and migrating patterns. He worked in Central America and Africa, working with the people there to become a comprehensive expert on world biology in any field that he could. He was married to Marjorie Harris, another environmentalist who formed the Florida Defenders of the Environment. Her name is attached to the Marjorie Harris Carr Cross Florida Greenway, a green corridor connecting several ecosystems in order to protect the wildlife there. This couple is so distinct and fascinating, I'll have to save their story for a future episode. But Archie and Marjorie were the real deal, and the places named for them are crucial to our protection of the state. Archie's spot is 20 and a half miles of protected land. Its existence is, quote, a direct result of Dr. Carr bringing attention to the world's declining turtle population due to overexploitation and loss of safe habitat, end quote. It is home to approximately one-third of all of the sea turtle nesting spots in the entirety of the United States. It is the most prominent spot for loggerheads to nest in the whole world, and the most prominent spot for green sea turtles in North America. My favorite big friend, the leatherback turtle, is not so active here, but many do begin their lives right on the shores of the refuge. And, thanks to the protection here, sea turtle population is on the up and up. I'll let Archie Carr's son, Archie Carr III, tell you a little bit about it. The turtle nesting rates at the Archie Carr Refuge have been skyrocketing. Now this is a slow process because it takes 20 odd years for the sea turtle to reach sexual maturity. We're up in the thousands of nests on the Archie Carr Refuge. It is a model of success in wildlife management. There are subdivisions and people living right behind the sea oats, right behind the sea grapes, behind the sand dunes. And so the Archie Carr Refuge literally becomes a model for Florida. If the turtles are nesting and are succeeding in their reproductive behavior, you have a model that is sustainable. And that can be replicated elsewhere in the state. You can have your economic development and protect those beaches. The preserve has huge areas of beach that have little to no development on them. This results in little to no artificial light, which is crucial. Sea turtle hatchlings usually sit in eggs for eight weeks along a seashore. After this time, on the perfect night, they emerge. They usually come out at night because it is cooler, but sometimes they come out in late afternoon or evening. Built into baby turtles is the desire to move toward light. On a pitch black beach, the most light you're going to be getting is from the stars or the moon reflecting off of the ocean. However, artificial lights can distract these little turtles and draw them away from the safety of the ocean. Even the most subtle lights can pull them away as they are already searching for these incredibly faint little spots of light. On more popular beachfronts, environmentalist groups advocate for darkening beaches by preventing public access at night, advocating for closing blinds on sea-facing windows, and generally diminishing all nighttime illumination on houses that are not blocked by dunes or vegetation. In the Archie Carr Refuge, these sorts of threats are implicitly removed. So from March 1st to October 31st, our sea turtles can be safe. Once I got onto A1A at Melbourne, it took me about two hours to actually arrive at the refuge because I kept stopping to enjoy the cities and spots passing by. First, I stopped for breakfast at Lily's Beachside Restaurant. It was a gray, cool day with wind picking up more and more as the day went by. Traffic was light on the highway, giving me opportunity to slow every once in a while to appreciate the condos or the apartments or the beach shacks along the road. There were beach access parking lots every mile or so, maybe even less than that. 
I knew that if there were going to be nests, my best bet would be to just stop in and take a look around. I was not so lucky, however, as the only thing I encountered on this cool spring day were people taking pictures next to colorful buildings, bored lifeguards up on their towers, and kids digging in the sand. I was expecting ribbons or signs indicating that nests were present here, but I was mistaken. It is still early in the season, certainly, with only massive leatherback turtles laying eggs currently, but I later discovered that the lack of signage had another reason. It's because there are literally just so many nests. When they are nesting actively, it's highly unlikely and nearly impossible for researchers and volunteers to denote every single nest along the east coast of Florida. So buried under the sand, the eggs rest in silence and without indication. Nearby is a museum and education center run by the Sea Turtle Preservation Society. A massive statue of a leatherback turtle sits in the window, nearly filling the space floor to ceiling. T-shirts, mugs, toys, books, and more sit on the shelves, all covered in the friendly face of a sea turtle. A secondary room, one clearly more dedicated to education, has hundreds of colorful pieces of origami shaped like turtles hanging from the ceiling. Smaller statues of sea turtles sit against the wall, looking shrunken in comparison to the leatherback in the main room. There are signs and posters riddled with information and boxes and books for visitors to sign. This room is filled to the brim. A small family of three was being led around by a tour guide as the young son asked questions and stared at the colorful displays. He asked how a flip-flop could be considered trash as he pointed to a net filled with garbage. Sea turtles eat all sorts of trash, the guide explained, but they mostly eat trash bags or plastic bags. This is because most sea turtles eat jellyfish, and a thin plastic bag floating in the sea has an uncanny resemblance to a jellyfish. These bags block up their digestive systems and can kill them. Leatherbacks are the turtles most affected by this as jellyfish are essential to their diet. But plastic isn't the only threat. Beach erosion, invasive species, commercial fishing, and even shell trade are critically dangerous to the survival of sea turtles. Obviously, they have natural threats, including raccoons and carnivorous birds, but humans are, of course, the main cause for the turtle's place on the threatened and sometimes endangered species list. But there are friends out there in the form of nonprofits and organizations like the Sea Turtle Conservancy. Formed in 1959 thanks to the work of our friend Dr. Archie Carr, the STC is a not-for-profit organization that researches, advocates for, and protects the sea turtles here in the U.S. and in Central America, specifically Costa Rica. Just as you can adopt manatees with the Save the Manatee Club, you can adopt a sea turtle here as well. They track turtles by satellite, they argue with Congress over bills to preserve their habitats, and they help in the running of both the Archicar National Wildlife Refuge here in Florida, as well as the Tortuguero National Park in Costa Rica. There are people out there fighting the fight. I found an article discussing people's questions regarding the turtles, including nesting and environment and things like that, and one near the bottom stood out. What value do sea turtles hold? It's hard for me to imagine someone genuinely asking that question, but it's no doubt that people wonder it. Why should I have to be more cautious with my lights in my beachside house? Why should I hold or recycle my plastic bags? Why should I advocate for protection and preservation of our beaches? What's the point? To those questions, I don't really have an answer for you. Why should you care? Because you just should. Further along A1A, just after a Publix, the developed world starts to fall away. 
There are rows of white square condos, lots filled with RVs and mobile homes, and then wetlands and dunes on either side. A sign zooms past with the familiar logo of a flying goose indicating that you've crossed the border into the Archie Carr National Wildlife Refuge. This is where the turtles would be whether I found them or not. On the east side of the road, there is a parking lot connecting to a beach called Ponce Landing. On the west is the Coconut Point Sanctuary. A three-quarter mile hike through the Coconut Point Sanctuary didn't show me anything besides a snake that was just as scared of me as I was of it. The Ponce Landing parking lot across the street, though, has a massive statue of Ponce de Leon himself, a cross in his right hand extended outward toward the ocean and a scroll downward in his left hand. He has a long, curly beard, slicked back hair, and traditional Spanish clothing, including baggy pants. He looms mightily over a parking lot. A historic marker denotes that this was actually a possible landing spot of Ponce de Leon. What? I'm in Melbourne Beach, 125 miles south of St. Augustine. St. Augustine has built an entire culture around the narrative that it was the landing spot of the Spanish in Florida in 1513 decades before Pedro Menendez returned to found the city itself. I don't think there are other states that have a historic figure so intrinsically tied up in their history and their name. Ponce de Leon is stitched into our foundation, for better or for worse. But this sign that literally reads, possible landing site of Ponce de Leon, presents the idea that the thing we know to be certain is not so certain. See, there was a man a few decades ago named Colonel Douglas T. Peck. He was a World War II veteran and a history fanatic who spent much of his adult life investigating the impact and roots of the European travelers as they approached the Americas. He recreated Columbus's roots across the Atlantic, wrote several unpublished books about the Maya culture, and in 1990, recreated De Leon's voyage from the Bahamas to Florida using De Leon's precise compass and route details. Using his own boat and tracking every detail along the way, Colonel Peck worked out every single little detail, and when his ships found the shore, he did not arrive in St. Augustine. He arrived within a few miles of Melbourne Park. The historic marker here notes that, because of this, history changed. Colonel Peck passed in 2014, but his legacy is tied up in a voyage that happened 400 years before he was born. He changed history. Nearby, along the wall of the bathroom facilities at the De Leon Park, there is a mural. It's made up of copper tiles that have been painted by children back in 2005. The sun has not been kind to the saturated paint, and the blue of the ocean and the green of the trees fade, with some pieces even missing from weather or perhaps a human factor. It's a grid of 19 by 10 with 190 individual tiles stitched together to create a single image. Altogether, it depicts a beach scene with sailing boats in the distance, Spaniards climbing the dunes, and Ponce de Leon looming large, pointing into the distance. But the mural has a second image to it. It's hard to describe it without visuals, but if you look at the mural from a different angle, standing to the left side, there are these rectangular tiles, half the size of the main squares, depicting native Floridians seeing Ponce's boats arriving at the shore. The tiles are almost hidden, totally obscured, and is literally half the size of the mural depicting the Spaniards landing. It's frankly unsettling. Not only are the human faces obscured and haphazard, giving an uncanny uneasiness to the whole thing, it is not depicting two sides of the story. In fact, it's telling one very complete story. 
The native Floridians are being swallowed up, pushed underneath as Ponce and his fleet swept onto our shores. The specific landing spot of Ponce is unknown, but his impact, positive or negative, is not. It's about this moment, looking at this mural, where my faith in finding sea turtle nests starts to fail me. I knew I wasn't going to see any actual sea turtles today, but I really just wanted to see a little sign indicating that this is where they were, this is where their lives began. There had been so much uncertainty along this trip so far, questions without answers. Where did Ponce de Leon land? Where do sea turtles nest on the shore? Why does that mountain disappear? All of these uncertainties were beginning to get to me, so I set my course for a surefire spot, the Loggerhead Marine Life Center in Juneau Beach. The first day that I saw that disappearing mountain was also the day that I visited the Loggerhead Marine Life Center for the first time. It's a non-profit sea turtle conservation center that educates about turtles, raises money to protect them, and houses a hospital for injured or sick turtles along its shores. The sick turtles rest in massive pools of water, cared for by volunteers and scientists. An on-site hospital treats them for their wounds, including injured flippers, damaged shells, and even the odd digestive illness. One turtle had a damaged shell that unfortunately made him have buoyancy issues. He would swim around at a sharp downward angle, his head pointed toward the bottom of the tank as he moved. To counter this, the medics placed a non-invasive weight around his lower half so his bottom legs would be weighed down and he could recalibrate his body. This turtle's name is Topsy. The center itself was packed with people moving through the museum, the gift shop, the turtle viewing area in hordes. Significant donors were walking around taking pictures with the little blue tanks that held the friendly turtles. Employees walked around the tubs chatting with kids and parents about the species of turtles, the protection of turtles, the lives of turtles. When I inquired after my favorites, the leatherback turtles, a young employee told me that they couldn't care for any of the leatherbacks here just due to size alone. I was disappointed to miss my huge friend, but I was delighted to imagine the kind of massive tank you would need to care for and keep this titanic turtle. I heard one volunteer at the front desk as I was leaving note that this was one of the busiest days at the center in a long time. It was the first Monday of spring break for many counties across the state, and the center is a wonderful way to start your vacation. Plus, it's right on the beach, so you can just walk out the door, hop on the boardwalk, and stroll happily into the ocean. If that's not the Florida dream, I don't know what is. Mysteries in Florida come in many forms, and some questions are often left without answers. Some have several answers, like where did Ponce de Leon land on our shores? Who knows? The conflict between St. Augustine and Melbourne Beach persists, both staking claim over the Spaniard. Some have no answer, like where are the sea turtle nests? Perhaps it's for the best that we don't know. Their dark nests get to rest under the sand, waiting until that perfect moment. Then there are some with answers that are disappointing in the end. Why does that mountain disappear? On my third visit, I realized something. The road has a slight rise to it, increasing in altitude bit by bit. The mountain, which seems to actually be a landfill, is not on an incline, so when you reach the top of the road's rise, there's a tall wall of trees that border your path, and the mountain sinks out of view, but is really just concealed out of sight. There is no magic, just an optical illusion. So what do we do with the question, how do we protect the sea turtles? That answer is not an easy one. But the Sea Turtle Conservancy, the Archie Carr National Wildlife Refuge, the Tortuguero National Park in Costa Rica, the Loggerhead Marine Life Center, and more offer one solution. Humanity. 
We cannot undo the sins of our history, but we can take a page out of Colonel Peck's book as he retraced De Leon's voyage to Florida. If we buckle in on our conservation methods, if we educate ourselves on the ways we can prevent trash in our oceans, if we learn to protect the shores that turtles and so many other creatures rely on, we can change history. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes, the Floridian podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. And if you did, please consider leaving a comment or a review down below. It helps a little show like this one grow, and it genuinely means the world to me. If you want to see pictures from the adventure that helped create this story, you can find those on the Instagram at Wait 5 Minutes Podcast. Or you can find me on Twitter at Wait 5 Minutes. If you have an idea for an episode or just want to reach out to me and tell me how much you're enjoying the show, you can find me at wait5minutespodcast at gmail.com. All of those will be in the description below. You can also find the names of the songs that I used by Lobo Loco and all of the links used in the research in that description below as well. This upcoming Tuesday is going to be a super mega packed episode of Tallahassee Tuesday. Usually Tallahassee Tuesday is about five minutes, but a lot has happened. So it's probably going to be a special 10 minute episode, but we'll see once it comes out. Then next Friday, it is going to be part two of the series Oil and the Everglades. The first episode for that came out at the beginning of this month on March 1st. The second episode will be coming out next Friday and it is called The Pockets. I'm very, very excited about that episode. In that episode, I will also be announcing the first few episodes of the month of April, which includes some really exciting history topics that I have been thrilled to talk about pretty much since I started making this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. That's all I've got for you. I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and drink more water. I'm Nick D'Alessandro. I will see you on Tuesday. <laughs>